anything a computer did, anything you did over the phone was enhanced unless it was plain voice. This is episode 213 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the importance of internet access to education, economic development, and all-around quality of life. But have you ever thought about the nature of the internet? In this episode, Fred Goldstein joins Chris. Fred is a principal of the Inter-Isle Consulting Group and shares his extensive knowledge of the history of what we now know as the Internet. Fred gets into the technology, policy, and regulatory actions that brought us to where we are now. This is the first of two interviews with Fred, who has written two books about telecommunications and who, in addition to his work at the firm, is a columnist for TMCNet. Now, here are Chris and Fred Goldstein, author and principal at Inter-Isle Consulting. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Chris Mitchell, and I'm here today with Fred Goldstein, a principal of the Inter-Isle Consulting Group. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on. I've I've been corresponding with you for many years, um, definitely more than five, and I've always been impressed at your level of knowledge and history with um, um, the nuances of uh, around the internet and past telecommunications regulation. Uh, but for people who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why they should listen to what you have to say? Uh, sure. I've uh, been in the uh, telecom area for over 40 years now. And I mean, I say it started off, you know, as a kid, I started off in ham radio uh, over 50 years ago and uh, was in broadcast engineering in college. I did the college radio station, helped get an FM license for them, was chief engineer, uh, did some a little bit of uh, broadcast work uh, and then um, later became involved professionally in telecommunications consulting in the 1970s. And I I worked at a regulatory-oriented consulting firm where we watched how the states and FCC regulated telecom. Mostly this had to do in those days with telephone rates. That was the big money. There's still a lot of uh, rented PBXs and other terminal equipment, uh, a lot of Centrex service. It was very voice-oriented, though there were, of course, uh, some data circuits. I then went to work for Digital Equipment Corporation uh, as an internal telecommunications consultant and worked in their network products group. I had also spent a few years as telecommunications manager at Bolt Baranek and Newman uh, in the late 70s when they were essentially uh, running the ARPANET. So I got to know the, the ARPANET people, many of the luminaries of the internet world were at BBN and uh, I was I was fundamentally in charge of the phones but I did pick up a lot of the uh, ARPANET culture and network culture which digital was carrying on in its own way uh, digital was a very networked company in the, even in the early 1980s its internal network technology I have to say from an applications perspective was well in adv- well advanced of the internet today well, and you're—I mean, it sounds like you're very involved with computers, with DEC, and so even if you were focused on telecom, you were with companies that were starting to really pioneer the computer revolution. Exactly, and really, my focus became the nexus of computers and telecom. So, in the late 1980s, one of the big pushes was ISDN. I was Digital's representative on the ANSI Standards Committee for ISDN, Frame Relay, and what became ATM networks. And so as these technologies were being developed, I was 
essentially in liaison with the telecommunications industry. Uh, we on the computer side of the house were a minority. So we already had the Internet. It was not open to the public, but we were using the Internet in those days. Companies were networked in those days, or we were networked better than most, but other companies had networking, and we needed public networks to give us the interconnection we needed. The Bell companies were really having a problem with this. Uh, they had some much narrower focus notions, so there was some tension there, but that's what the standards process is about, and we did make some progress. Then in the 1990s, as the Internet became public, the uh, perspective of the world changed. Everybody started noticing this technology. Uh, that there were a lot of issues that had happened in the meantime. One of the key things, of course, I was uh, working in the field in the uh, early 1980s when two very critical regulatory and legal changes happened to the industry. And let me guess, is these uh, computer inquiries? That's right. That was the number one. People think divestiture, that was number two in importance. But the computer inquiries are what made the internet possible. And so I think briefly, uh, because this leads into our question of what is the internet, um, why are the computer inquiries important? And for people who are just wondering, what is that? Uh, what is it? <laughs> okay, well, this goes back 50 years, 1966. Computers were starting to get used inside the telephone network. The, the first computer-controlled switching systems were being used, the original 1ESS. And companies were connecting their sites together. They were using what was, uh, computer terminals, what was called teleprocessing in the IBM world. So, you know, banks were coming online and a lot of businesses were making some use of telephone and computer together. Modems did exist, but you had to rent them from the phone company. So they were an expensive business luxury. Time-sharing computers I first saw Dartmouth timesharing in 1965, and over that next decade, it spread very widely until personal computers rendered it obsolete. But the, the idea of every school having a computer terminal uh, was catching on in those days. And so computers had to use the phone. The FCC then had to draw lines. When is the computer part of the network? When is the computer a user of the network? That was really the fundamental question. And why is it important to make that distinction? Uh, it's a very critical distinction because when the computer is part of the network, the phone company owns it. They're providing a computing service versus they're just carrying the traffic and letting you own the computers and do what you want. And the phone company using its natural monopoly to provide what it provides best, which is just raw transport. Great. Okay. So they were trying to capitalize. They had transport. What if they could provide services with their computers? They could use computers to do more than simply run the network. So the computer inquiries began. Computer Inquiry 1, 1969, divided it in three. Uh, there was pure telecommunications and pure computing and a range of hybrids in the middle. And when a phone company wanted to do something that was a hybrid, they were supposed to go to the FCC to figure out what to do. So in the, the first computer inquiry, the FCC really didn't solve the problem. It essentially said, come to us when anything isn't clear. That didn't work. 
And and just to be clear, is why would the FCC have to be involved? Is it because Bell might use its monopoly to disadvantage the companies that wanted to do whatever they wanted to do? That was certainly a big part of it. Also, remember, this was 1969, just happened, the Carter phone decision that legalized privately owned terminal devices, your own telephone set, your own modem, an answering machine. These had just been authorized, but the terms, the original terms until the mid-70s were very difficult, so it was not widespread. But the idea was that the telephone network was a closed shop. Since the terminals belonged to the phone company, computer terminals had this interface, RS-232. So the modem was the phone company, and the mouthpiece where you talked was RS-232. And the phone companies wanted to extend what they owned versus what the customer controlled. So there was always this tension because the network was a monopoly. And so the more the network did, the less you could do for yourself. Great. I'm, 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 as you were saying that, I just couldn't help but think about the movie War Games with that, um, the receiver. And because I think that for many of us, that was our first exposure to it who didn't grow up with it. Right. Joshua. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was a lot of this time sharing going on. And, you know, the computer uh, inquiries made this possible, as did the uh, Carter phone ruling in 1968, actually, which allowed attachments to the phone network. So during the 70s, we had dial-up modems were clearly allowed. Well, Computer 2 was a ruling that came out around the end of 1980. And it was absolutely seminal. It really changed the nature of the network. It said that the telephone companies were only allowed to provide under tariff on a month-to-month rental basis or service basis, quote-unquote, basic service. And a basic service was one that wasn't, quote-unquote, enhanced. And essentially, (laughs) an enhanced service was the content. Anything a computer did... Anything you did over the phone was enhanced unless it was plain voice. People in the computer business have no idea that long-distance telephone calls were an absolute monopoly of the Bell system. Even the independent phone companies interconnected interstate through AT&T long lines in the 1970s. And competitors started, MCI and Sprint started dial-up competition in the late 70s and the way you accessed it if you had an mci account mci started this it was called execunet and it's not as if the fcc knew they were giving permission but mci was called a law firm with an antenna on the roof for good reason mci figured out they filed a bunch of tariffs for private line services and worded them in such a way that they were able to piece together a long-distance telephone call service. Pick up the phone at one end, dial your local MCI access number, get a second dial tone, enter your account number, get a third dial tone, dial the number you want to call, and the call then travels across MCI's network. They pick up a local company phone in the distant location, dial out, and complete your call. Long-distance competition. The FCC hated that and spent three years litigating it, finally in 1979 coming out with a rule for it that that made MCI legal, but it also meant they had to pay something. And they didn't want computers to be on the same rule. So anything that looked like MCI executive 
just dialing voice, was subject to one set of rules that everything else they knew of they called an enhanced service. Basically, you have MCI, which I, I would just want to note for people. MCI led to so much interest. There's so many great companies that were started by people who came out of MCI. Uh, I think it's it's often um, unremarked on just how impressive MCI was and, and how it's impacted our um, our, our current lives. But um, MCI basically develops a service that looks and feels like long distance, but technically is not. And the FCC says, well, we don't want to continue this, but we're going to set up this other regime for computers. Is that more or less accurate? Well, essentially, they said, MCI, you can continue to do this if you pay a contribution, because the assumption was in those days, long distance, subsidized local, long lines, kick back lots of money to the local phone companies. So they made MCI kick back money to the local phone companies by creating a special set of rules for the lines used by long distance companies to complete calls. They call those exchange network facilities for interstate access. And that's still the rule. So-called access charges are still on the books and carriers still have access circuits. They're called switched access circuits. That was created in 1979 as a way to Make sure that MCI and Sprint, who was doing the same thing, and others others were coming along copying them, were at least making a bigger contribution to the local phone companies. So that was really the idea. Just as that was happening, the computer inquiries said, you can hook up anything. And you know, these computer networks were not local. Computer networks were you know, interstate, non-local. And so there were, you know, phone company people who wanted that to be treated as a long distance call. Many times that came up. But the FCC very wisely said, no, those are enhanced services. Those are not access lines. Those are exempt lines. They're exempt from access charges because that's an enhanced service. That was the beauty of Computer 2. It also said, this is critical, if the phone company offers an enhanced service, they have to offer it through a separate subsidiary. Cannot be tariffed, has to be a separate subsidiary, and any basic services that are used by the enhanced service have to be made available on the same terms to competitors. So all the private lines, data lines, all the lease circuits had to be made available to competitors. That's what opened up the market so that the internet and on, well, first it was online data services like, you know, CompuServe and TimeNet and uh, Timeshare. Those sorts of services were all enhanced services. They could order phone lines and the phone company couldn't deny it. They cried in their beer all the way to the bank, giving <laughs> them lease lines, giving them dial-up circuits. These companies built huge networks, paying the phone company for basic service. Right, and ultimately leading to families like mine to having two phone lines in my home. Absolutely, and come the, come the 1990s, the second phone line, talk about crying all the way to the bank. There's a boom in dial-up because that was the only way to reach the, you know, the Internet and, uh, for most people. And so, yes, the phone companies sold a lot of phone lines that way. And so let's tie this back in. You uh, mentioned AT&T breakup was the other important point. So um, let's, let's cover that and then tell me how, that, how all that led to the Internet. Sure. The AT&T breakup essentially changed the nature of the industry from having one huge company that owned 82% of the U.S. telephone lines to having seven companies 
that were the local Bell companies, and AT&T was left with the long lines business and its manufacturing businesses that were all competitive. So you had a competitive AT&T competing on an equal playing field with the other competitive companies like MCI and Sprint. And you also had all the terminal equipment going to AT&T that had been the Bell companies. So the terminal equipment business was totally deregulated and very competitive. And the Bell companies were left in charge of the quote-unquote natural monopoly, the local networks only. Now, this did create a lot of competition in the areas that were left open to competition, but it left the Bell companies with more power than people realized. Having that monopoly, that was the squeeze. They could charge those access charges to the long-distance companies, and they tried to get the rule changed to charge access charges to the uh, enhanced service providers as well. That was nicknamed the modem tax and was stopped in Congress in 1988. Okay, so we have this system with the seven local Bell companies. Uh, how does that lead to the Internet, and why is that important for the Internet? Well, what's happened to the Internet is not so, was not so much that there were seven Bell companies. What, what was more important was that Computer 2 said that the Bell companies had to provide their local facilities to, as common carriers to anyone who asked. They couldn't turn down uh, a competitor. So the... Internet existed using the NSFNet backbone, but that was really not open to the public. It had uh, an acceptable use policy. It was not allowed to be used for commercial purposes. And in 1992, that rule has changed. Commercial ISPs popped up. The online service providers began a multi-year process of morphing into ISPs. AOL was not an ISP in 1992, but they existed. Right. I remember that quite well. And I remember when they started adding Internet access and I, people that I knew would be confused and think, why would I go on this Internet thing? I have everything I need from America Online, which was basically chat rooms and uh, maybe like a little bit of browsing opportunities. <laughs> that's right. They added that's right. They added email, I think, in version two, uh, web browsing in version three. But it was still a terminal to host system. It was you were dialing in as a computer terminal. Your PC ran a program that was simply displayed displaying material that their computers in Virginia were doing all the computing and all the actual internet access went through Virginia. Right. So AOL and their competitors morphed into ISPs, but the idea that there was this, you know, the glory days of totally neutral transport didn't exist. AOL provided the applications AOL wanted to provide. Application by application, it was added. You may remember NetNews still exists, the you know, NNTP uh, net news. Mm -hmm. AOL added that as did you know their competitors, some of their competitors. So you you had this morphing over time, and this was all done because everyone could rent phone lines and use the internet, and it was not treated as a long distance call, much to the chagrin of the telephone companies. It blew their business model, but they did sell a lot of phone lines in the 90s. Now the computer two rules also said, in those days. If the phone companies had DSL, which came out in the late 90s, they had to make the DSL available again to anyone who wants to use it. So not only did uh, Verizon Online have access to Verizon Internet, in those days, of course, it was called Bell Atlantic. So you know, Bell Atlantic had a DSL service, a retail service, but the Bell Atlantic telephone companies had to make the raw DSL packet transport available to other ISPs. Earthlink was a big user, for instance. So there were many local ISPs could use DSL. 
And let's make this very plain. I, I think that I have had a sense, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, now, I lived in Rochester, Minnesota at the time, and I think, I can't remember, I think it was InfoNet was the ISP there, a local company. And, you know, the Bell companies, as you were saying, I think they were frustrated because um, my family was paying money to InfoNet to connect to the internet. And so even though, you know, we also paid the telephone company for the lines that we were using and InfoNet paid the telephone company for the lines they were using. There's also this margin that we were paying them and the Bell companies wanted that margin. Um, now, we had the choice of many different ISPs, um, but the Bell company would have preferred if we only could go through them if they had the power to do that. Is that uh, correct? You said something very important. You had a choice of many ISPs. That's right. The Bells wanted to be your ISP, so that even though they hated the Internet with a purple passion, <laughs> they'd rather be the one to take some business and do a crappy job of it because they hated it. But they didn't want third parties to be making that money. And so they didn't want ISPs to exist. They waged a war on ISPs. And this really was political because the Clinton administration and the FCC under Chairman Kennard and Chairman Hunt were pro-competition, pro-ISP. But the minute the new FCC came in after the Cheney-Rove regime took power in 2001, they put in a new FCC under uh, Chairman Powell that was anti-ISP and really took its orders from the Bells. And they wanted to take away your choice of ISPs and put the ISPs out of business. So one of the things they did was say, one by one, you can't, if you're an ISP, you can't use fiber, only the copper DSL, because they wanted to encourage fiber was one excuse. That if the Bells had a, quote, regulatory holiday from, uh, you know, having to share the fiber, maybe they'd upgrade their network as they had promised 10 years earlier to do anyway. So I have an example of that, which is uh, when I started here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we got our internet access from a local company called IP House, which is a terrific company that still does a lot of data hosting and that sort of thing. But we could only get the slowest DSL available. We couldn't get the faster service. If we had gone to Quest at the time, I think that was before CenturyLink bought Quest, then we could have gotten a faster service that that's only available through Quest, and um, and that was because Quest was denying the um, faster DSL service to this um, this local independent company. Now, if the FCC's reasoning was correct by allowing Quest to do that, Quest would have had an incentive to deliver fiber throughout the Twin Cities metro area. But they didn't do that. <laughs> they just basically delivered a slightly faster DSL with poorer customer service. And in many ways, we got screwed and we ended up on Comcast because the last thing we wanted to do was to you know, get a slower service. If we, if we couldn't have a good local service, we were going to get the fastest service possible. And that's what we did. Well, of course. And cable was the winner. That's the thing. Cable was offering a better service than DSL, and the phone companies didn't really want to invest too much in fiber, but they used that as an excuse. Now, in the original rule was that they couldn't share fiber, but they still, in 2001, had to share the DSL, but they were sharing the low-speed DSL. Come 2005, the FCC, and this is critical, the FCC dropped the rule in 2005. They literally revoked Computer 2, repealed it, 
and said that the underlying transport facilities do not have to be made available to competitors. The Bells could offer a vertically integrated information service, information service being essentially the new name from the Telecom Act of 1996, for what had been called an enhanced service. They're almost the same thing. And so the Bells could offer their internet service vertically integrated, meaning that you didn't have the access to buy the bit transport as a competitor. They only made the retail available, not the underlying wholesale. So that shut off access to the competing internet service providers. No more competing local ISPs. Now, they didn't shut them all off right away day one. They made all this noise to the FCC how not requiring them to do it would give them an incentive to commercially upgrade their facilities. After all, they wanted to compete with cable. But in fact, they shut off the ISPs uh, over the next few years. They basically grandfathered existing ISP contracts onto the lowest rate plans, and those lowest rate plans became obsolete, and then they phased those out. Then they made this, in some cases, an offer that an ISP could resell the Bell's own ISP and take over the billing as a sales agent. So it's kind of like Dish Network, where you can still be an independent Dish dealer, but you're selling Dish. And you could still be an independent, quote-unquote, ISP seller, but you're selling CenturyLink or selling AT&T. That's not competition. That's just agency. So that's gone away. Any meaningful competition. You had made a point that the Bell folks really hated the internet, and and I think we just need to explain that for a second. And and this gets down to something that has shown up occasionally on MuniNetworks.org with a discussion between people who might call themselves Bellheads and people who call themselves Netheads. And I mean, just tell us why the the Bell folks were so um, angry and distrustful of the internet. It goes back to how the telephone company business model works in the U.S has nothing to do with charging based upon cost. If you're a real business, you want to do cost accounting, figure out how much it costs to deliver a product, and mark it up by some amount to make a profit. But if you're a Bell company, the rules are different. They were on uh, an accounting rule set up for monopoly utilities that said they took in money and they spent money, but there was no connection between the products. So they could lose money in one place and make an absurd profit in another. Long distance was set up to be profitable so that they could have low rates for residential service. They used to brag, everything is there for grandma. In fact, when Carter Phone came out, again, they cried in their beer profusely that if you're allowed to buy your own telephone set, grandma can't afford a phone because the charges they mark up their profits on – Luxury, unnecessary items like color telephones that aren't black. There was a charge for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Princess phones, you know, light-up dials. Yep. Right. Yeah. Anything but a plain black rotary dial telephone was marked up. Touchtone was marked up absurdly as a service. The rotary dial service was basic. Touchtone could be $4 a month extra for the right to – and it cost them less to provide. They actually saved money with Touchstone, but they marked it up because it was a luxury. And long distance was the number one luxury. So AT&T long lines and later all of the, after divestiture, all the competing long distance companies had to pay those minutes of use 
switch access charges for every minute they delivered or picked up. So both ends of a call. If you were calling from Minneapolis to New York, then in Minneapolis, the long distance company would pay uh, U.S. West or Quest. And in New York, they'd pay 9X Bell Atlantic or Verizon, depending on when the company's name changed. But the point is that the long distance company always lost. The business model was long distance subsidizes local. Along comes the internet, which has no notion of long distance. That's very threatening, especially VoIP. I mean, the idea of voice over IP, but even sending an email, even just doing any activity that you could use the phone and not be paying them a share of the, what they considered the value of the call was threatening to their monopoly business model. Right. Although it's worth pointing out that the, the trade-off for that, I mean, it's not just that sort of AT&T was screwing the country. There was also the benefit that everywhere had affordable local phone service, more or less. Um, everyone had service. And so, you know, these are the sort of trade-offs we'd made a long time ago. And I think certainly AT&T did very well with them. Um, but it, it developed a certain culture and a certain power that they sure love to have, that, that level of control. Well, that's right. In fact, the, the Bell companies even today do things that do not maximize profit. They simply do things uh, for the sake of control, even if it loses money. They price services above the profit maximization point because they'd rather not do it than lose the control they think is implicit in providing some services. So it really is that monopoly DNA, uh, the, the frog and the scorpion comes to mind <laughs> yes right? no, i absolutely agree yes there, there, there's a lot of scorpion left in their dna um and and so you know and yes it's true that the cross subsidies helped but there are ways of doing that and it's done today that don't don't inhibit technological progress but their model was to hold up technological progress in order to preserve the business model intact and of course they could have made money changing their business model, their costs did go down because electronics, you know, the telephone network costs much less to run now than it did 50 years ago. Stringing wire still costs a lot of money. Stringing fiber is expensive. But the electronics, the inside stuff, dirt cheap, a teeny fraction of what it cost back in the days when there was thousands and thousands of relays needing lots and lots of maintenance and, you know, huge jobs to install. Well, and that's where you also get into they have all this real estate, which was paid for by a monopoly, by you know regulated rates. And now they own all of these buildings and major cities that they really they can they can lease out. They can do whatever they want with because the, the big computers they used to have making all this um, magic happen. Uh, it's reduced to one or two racks here or there, it seems like. That's right. You can put a huge modern switching system in two racks that used to take a whole floor or two of a building. And uh, before that, remember, they had cord switchboards a century ago, and those took lots of rooms for dozens of operators in a major city to be plugging in cords. They've still got those buildings, and they're starting to realize that they can't, you know, there's a big market for data centers. And these buildings had wonderful air conditioning and massive power systems and redundant power, you know, and backup systems. And they're starting to realize that maybe this is useful real estate. But they've been very slow to that party to even uh, recognize the value of their buildings and use the empty space. As we're running out of time, we're going to come back and discuss this more fully. But in a, in a brief synopsis, Fred, just tell us what the Internet is, and, and, and we'll discuss this in a, in a later show. Sure. The Internet is not 
the wires. The internet is an agreement, a voluntary agreement among network operators to exchange traffic for their mutual benefit. In other words, there are many internet service providers. They're not supposed to be rules like the telephone network as a single worldwide network. An ISP is what it wants to be. ISPs make their own deals for interconnection bandwidth. ISPs offer the services they choose. That's why it works. And they're a layer above telecommunications. ISPs are computer operators who rent wires. Now, the trouble is the FCC, by revoking Computer 2, allowed the telephone companies to and the cable companies to claim to be ISPs and claim that their wire is the Internet. But it's not. Louis Pouzan invented internetworking in France in 1972 as a way to interconnect networks when the local Phone companies in, across Europe were building incompatible data networks. And the idea was you can relay a packet across one network and then from a, another machine, computer relay across the next network when two networks connect to one machine. That's internetworking. It's a layered concept and it's a voluntary concept. It's the antithesis of telecommunications, which is a regulated service that was designed around a monopoly utility model. They're both necessary. The internet is the payload of telecommunications and the FCC's model and the current quote-unquote network neutrality model totally misses that. And in so doing, both telecommunications and the internet are damaged. It's like an arm with no elbow. <laughs> well, with that, I think we're going to cut this show off. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, definitely, I hope people will keep an eye on the feed for when you're back and we can flesh that out more. Thank you so much, Chris. Enjoyed being here. That was Chris and Fred Goldstein, principal at Inter Isle Consulting. For more, check out the firm's website at interisle.net. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Roller Genoa for their song Safe and Warm and Hunter's Arms licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 213 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.